Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. We're at Salt Lake Comic Con. We're out in the back at the loading docks with Keith Coogan. He, I call him Mr. Babysitter because he's from probably the two baby, best babysitting movies ever. How are you, Keith? Uh, Dylan, Dylan, Dylan. So good to, to finally meet up with you and get to talk in person. I'm awesome. We just started the Salt Lake Comic Con, and it's amazing to be here. Well, well thanks for you know taking a few minutes to talk with me. Um, I first wanted to... Um, talk about your grandfather since it's kind of a shorter interview you know I wanted to cover him first what was it like growing up with him and did he inspire you to get into acting uh he what uh he, I was about 14 when he passed away and he was living with us at the time and uh so I got to spend a lot of great time with my grandfather he would teach me more behind the scenes stuff how to behave on a set and you know how to be seen and not heard and uh, how to speak up for yourself if you need to as a kid he's like you know get you know adults don't really listen to kids so he really helped me out uh, he always would say you know watch your money be careful of mothers uh, taught me how to cheat at chess and I came to him one day as I got an audition for Disney was doing another version of Tom Sawyer and he had done the first talkie version of Tom Sawyer so I came to him with my sides you know with the fleeting look on my face and go you know grandpa would you you know help me out with my sides for the audition and he goes no he goes that's your take on it I can't tell you how to do the part part and it was at the time I took it like oh he wouldn't even help me but I was realized that was really amazing of him to to kind of show me you know give me the room to to go ahead and do it my you know my own way and so I I don't know I he wouldn't ever give me acting tips but he would give me life tips I'm nervous so I didn't I didn't give his grandfather's background first he was uh, Uncle Fester in the Adams Family TV series and he was also the kid in Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. Am I am I correct on that? Nailed it. Yeah, Chaplin's first feature, uh, and uh, you know, discovered my great grandparents were in vaudeville, and so they had brought the kid out onto the stage at four years old at the end of the act, and Chaplin was in the house and uh, got very inspired and wanted to see if uh, Jackie could be the kid he could work with, and so he started playing with him on stage after the show and. Uh, and my grandfather could mimic everything and do it exactly like Chaplin wanted and do it over and over again. And Chaplin said he does it like it's the first time each time. And he cast it. took a year and a day to shoot it. There was no script. They just invented stuff on the set every day. And it's re- such a remarkable movie. still holds up today. Great movie. Now, um, when did you start acting? I was about uh, five or six. I got my union card at six years old, and it was commercials and uh, movies of the week, after-school specials, and guest appearances on great 70s shows like Chips and Love Boat and Fantasy Island, Eight is Enough, Mork and Mindy, Laverne and Shirley. I just had Night Rider. I got to ride around in kit. So I had a really fun time as a kid uh, doing a lot of television. And I was auditioning for films. I was auditioning for E.T. and Goonies and Stand By Me and A Christmas Story. And saying, you know, I'm friends with all of the, you know, kids that are in these films we all went up for the same things together and some movies you get and some you don't and then finally Adventures in Babysitting came along and that was really my first feature I turned 17 just a couple of weeks into shooting what was uh, tell us about you know being on a movie set the first time what kind of you know stuff you learned gosh I mean I was really spoiled because you know Disney was behind it so it had a very healthy budget and uh, every toy you wanted to play cranes and you know (laughs) trucks and lights and and it was Chris Columbus's directorial debut and he really was uh, you know one of the kids he never talked down to us uh, but he played with us and you know he had a great sense of fun and adventure and he brought his kind of dark comic tone to it and uh, so I'm just, you know, I'm thrilled to have been a part of Adventures of Babysitting and very grateful to Chris Columbus and Disney and uh, Linda Opes and Deborah Hill, the producers, and uh, David Simpkins, who wrote a great script. Do you have a favorite moment from filming? The blues bar sequence. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Nobody leaves this place without singing the blues. Very nice. Um, the other babysitting movie, um, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, 
that was that was after Adventures in Babysitting, I believe. Yes. And um, so, what what was it like on, on that set? Another set full of kids and. It was great, you know, the writers of Don't Tell Mom, their conceit, they had seen a lot of films where the parents go away or whatever and the kids just destroy everything and it's a big mess. And they said, what if we wrote a movie where the parents go away, the mom goes away, but the uh, the kids get their stuff together and they actually, everything's better by the time the parents <laughs> come back. And so that was the genesis of Don't Tell Mom, the Babysitters. It was originally called The Real World, produced by MTV and Warner Brothers and uh, Outlaw Pictures that had done Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Uh, and uh, it, it was summer camp for adults. We had so much fun, uh, especially, you know, I had so much fun with Christina, you know, working on gags and uh, she's, She's a very dear friend. Love her. Um, uh, since then, you've gone into comedy and you do these cons. Uh, t- tell us what you've been, you know, doing. Oh, just uh, enjoying, you know, every opportunity to uh, work in front of the camera and as behind the camera. Now, I, you know, moving to that is is very rewarding. Definitely more challenging. It's a lot easier to be an actor. Uh, and the I love the conventions. Getting to meet with the fans and you know have that share that connection. And traveling is really important because uh, they might not be able to get to Hollywood and see, you know meet any people that you know they see. And if it's something they grew up with or they were fond of Adventures of Babysitting or Fox and the Hound or toy soldiers I you know I love it I love meeting the fans and uh, and I'm a fan myself you know I run around the convention and you saw me freak out Battlestar Galactica oh my god <laughs> yeah and I, I follow you on social and you know you guys are going to premieres and conventions and you know you guys are lighting up when you meet and these oh, other celebrities yeah it's really fun we love getting uh, selfies with uh, all the performers we love well, if my listeners want to uh, check you out, where, where on social can they find oh, you? Thank you so much. Uh, uh, com, and I got links to you know pictures, pictures of me as a kid, behind the scenes stuff, uh, and uh, videos, including my stand up act, which is online as well. So all at keithcooganonline.com. And we also sell the merchandise you saw over at the table, the the dishes I sign, and dish <laughs> towels, and the fun stuff. That's all online there too. Now, per a personal favor, can you say the podcast is done, man? The podcast is done, man. <laughs> Captain, we're caught in some kind of tractor beam. Open a channel! I sense a presence I've not felt in a long time. Nerds! Ah. You again. Look, we're not nerds. If we're nerds, you're nerds. Yeah, right. I'm a Sith Lord, and you're a bald guy in pajamas. Can you do this? Welcome back, everybody. We're at Comic-Con Day 3. I'm here with Larry... How do you say the last name? It's Nimichek. Nimichek. I always seem to put an extra letter in there and <laughs> give it a little twist. You're the only one in history. Really? Yeah. <laughs> no one's ever ever come up with five million other ways to say No, it's all good. My last name is Maziotti. I, I get Maziotti all the time yeah. and everything in between. So, in fun last names. Anyway, you are best known as Mr. Trek. Yeah. Well, Dr. Trek. Dr. It's, Trek. It's all made up, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're probably I, most well known for the Star Trek Next Generation companion book. That was what certainly, yeah put me on the map out of Oklahoma and got me out to L.A. and the, and the greater Trek land out there. I actually have one. I couldn't find it to bring today. Oh, no. But, but I, I like highlighted and cross-referenced, you know, <laughs> even more than you did. A blue or red or a black cover? Red cover. Okay. So I don't think it was the final, final mm-hmm. version, but I think it was at, near the end. The seven seasons in the first movie. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, what... I, I don't really know much history before that. What kind of led you to put that together, or what what were you involved with to get there? Um, especially sitting in central Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, I'd been a fa- I had a million interests. Been a Trek fan since my ninth grade science teacher shamed me into going home and watching it because she couldn't believe I wasn't already. And I was a big NASA kid before I was a sci-fi. I was a sci-fi fan, but not a huge sci-fi fan. But I'm history buff and NASA and came to Star Trek from that route and really appreciated that it was us in the future 
right. you know, projected forward. So it was a fan, and I, like I said, I, I, you know, built models and model rockets and collected stamps and model railroads and did scale model building and all this, all this stuff. Went to college, theater degree, journalism degree, uh, and was a Trek fan through all that and the first, you know, rerun fan, you know, watching reruns. And loved B. Joe's Concordance, loved the Technica Manual, and... Uh, was, but I was doing my own notes on shows. I, like, well, this only goes so far. So I'm like doing all my note taking, and and love Stephen Poe Whitfield's making of Star Trek book, the right. classic. And then we get through the '80s and the movies, and then here comes Next Generation. Oh my God, a new show! Um, and I thought, and and Max Macintosh computers and desktop publishing came out, and I thought I'm going to do my own like B. Joe Concordance type thing, and maybe do it as a zine and just sell a few copies. But I'm doing it for me. And I just started doing that, and my forehead VCR, where you could pause and have a clear picture, <laughs> so you could read all the in-jokes that were suddenly in there, and um, yeah, and stuck with it. And after a couple of years, saw Richard Arnold convention, invited him to our convention, Oklahoma City, and just threw in first copy of my first season Concordance, and he went ape over it, because before the internet, before Memory Alpha, and before professional books... The, their writers had nothing. The assistants got stuck looking at videotapes and old scripts oh, wow. to research things. So I was this godsend, and I, but I was just this guy in Oklahoma, you know. Right. And so a couple of years later, was on vacation, went over, toured the sets, met Gene, the one and only time, with no camera, because the signs all said no cameras. I was so naive and stupid then. I actually followed the signs. What they meant was don't walk around like a tourist with a camera on your neck. Yeah. <laughs> Stick it in a bag and get it out when you get where you're going. But I yeah. didn't know that then. So I have my memory of Gene's meeting in my, in my memory. But anyway, so I, you know, and, and the whole time everybody there was saying, oh, my God, this should be a professional book. This should be a professional book. So finally it got to licensing in the early days of licensing when there was nothing out yet. And they didn't know if anything would sell. So the show is like fourth, fifth season going crazy after Best of Both Worlds. And the tech manual finally came out, and they only printed 10,000 copies, and it sold out in two days. So they were, after Star Wars exploded with merch, they were afraid of merch? Well, they were afraid of, when when Star Trek came back, they knew that the original series was still selling, but nobody knew what the legs of Next Generation would be yet. And And they were selling, and the novels had been out. Like, novels are one thing. You could crank out those, and model kits and things, but... Doing nonfiction and reference books, they didn't know what that would do, even though it was crazy. Like, well, I could have told you that. But fans were doing, you know, unofficial ones and unauthorized. When those started to pop up at cons and sell, because they sent me a couple of them to look at, but um, it's kind of like, no, here, guys, it's okay. And they would, like, do these hesitant little print runs, and they would sell out in two days. (laughs) So, of the tech manual especially. And mine was kind of that same way, and they went through... So, yeah, so it was this huge seller, not because I was the most brilliant research writer, but because Next Gen was so, you know, insanely popular. And you were the first that kind of got it right, out right, there right. even more. And my concordances, I thought I was going to do an encyclopedia concordance type thing. And right. they said, well, we've decided not to reprint B. Joe's and do yours. We're going to combine them, and Mike and Denise are going to do a combined one. But can you do an episode guide, a behind-the-scenes book? And I was like, uh, sure. Like, I'm thinking, okay, now it'll be like... Steve Poe Whitfield's book, you know, with all the interviewing in it. And, and right. it's, okay, can you do it in three months? I'm like, what? <laughs> what? But Not you know, myself. You know how an actor, when an actor gets an audition and they go, okay, this is yours, but you can scuba dive, right? You know, or you can ride a horse, right? You go, of course I can. And then, then you, you go, you run out and t- yeah, then you run out and take lessons. And I'm like, sure, I can do it in three months. Holy, you know. So I was like cranked it out for, th- and then I got an extra three months because Leonard was Leonard Nimoy was having a, a license imaging dispute because he was mad about a P- Fruity Pebbles commercial, where Barney was wearing pointed ears and he was mad that Paramount didn't raise a fuss about it, and um, or they gave approval and he wasn't consulted or something. So he was withholding. So the biggest story in five years was Spock being in unification on Next Generation, right? And the first few printings of the book we couldn't use pictures of Spock with that episode. <laughs> but then everything worked out and we did. But I mean these are like the wacky little, you know, stories of things in my memory. So then they figured out what was happening 2 years later they're going to end in 7 years, do a movie, DS9 started. You got the idea they were rolling things out and we had the plan for the the second edition and by that time 
my family and I decided, my young family decided to move to L.A., and my wife was lucky enough to get a, a temp job on Voyager that turned into a full-time job for five years. Oh, what job was and, that? And she was the assistant script coordinator on Voyager. Okay. She worked with Lolita Fajo. She wasn't her assistant, like secretary assistant. They yeah. did work work. And then there was another person on DS9 did the same thing. Um, and, and suddenly, and then the world was exploding. And I, very soon after that, the fact files internationally happened. And very soon after that, I was the editor of the communicator magazine and consulting on things from the experience in Vegas to the tour shows. Oh, I love that All of experience. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, well, ever, yeah. I went down there once and went through it. And it was just well, I'm glad amazing. you got to see it once. I, it, it was the first version. That was it the Klingon version? Mm-hmm. And then they did the Borg later. I, I was so bummed I yeah. never saw the Borg one. Yeah. But well, they, they added the Borg, but yeah. yeah. Yes. When it was, originally it was Star Trek experience, the ride. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they added the Borg, they had to give a title to the, you know, the, it's the Borg adventure and the Klingon encounter or the Klingon adventure and the Borg encounter. I always mix up which, but no, it was, I got to do, I did all the plaques in the museum. Oh, oh, great. And then when they updated the timeline, I did the, up, the for Archer and Paul, I updated the timeline for that. So I was one of the many, many people that worked on that whole thing. I was proud to be part of it and was there when it opened and, you know, the gala. One of my favorite moments is stepping off the ride and seeing the entrance to Quarks because it reminded me just like in the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very... Very magical place. And all the employees that worked there, the character actors, the bartenders, everybody that was there for so long, and, and the fans they had of just them. It was, it was really, it's so trite to say it was a magical time those years, but it, it really was. And that group is still, still has fans and still is together. And um, uh, One of the waitresses from down there lives here locally, and I've talked to her about it a few times, and she, she loved it. Yeah, it was, um, yes. So with the book, well, there's, was there any time where you were on set working on the, the book at all? Barely. Barely, okay. <laughs> I had one, I came out for one week, you know, on my own dime, and, and met Bob Justman at his home, did like a three-hour interview with him. I was like totally riding the rails on this, because I knew that if I put out, I knew the book sat on shelves of fans. Like, I knew Stephen Poe Whitfield's. It was, this was the late 70s, or this was the early 90s, and his 1968 book was still sitting on everybody's shelf. You know, it was good and a Bible, and you still went back to. It. And I, and if nothing else, I sure couldn't put out a bunch of a, a crap thing that was really shallow and didn't have anything to it. Right. So I was busting my butt above and beyond the call of duty and what I was really getting paid for. And in my head, I'm like, I'm an official author of a licensed book. It was very good in education that paramount in the Star Trek operation. Like there was production doing the show, and there was publicity. And there was licensing. Consumer products was licensing. There was all these different arms. Like people that say, oh, used to, in the old days, would say Paramount this and Paramount that. And today they say CBS this and CBS. It's not a monolith. There's all these arms. And they yeah. all have their own goals and aims. And they don't fight against each other. But sometimes something is a priority one and it's not a priority for the other. And I showed up with my week and the process. And that was before publicity was on the lot. And they hired a third party. And the process was I was supposed to submit my questions and interview list request to, to pocketbooks, who would then send it to the off-lot <laughs> PR people, who then send it back to production and the people on the lot. So it yeah. went through three hands. So I thought, I'm an official author. The gates will open and the red carpet will roll out. And here's the official author. Everybody drop what you're doing and talk to him because he's doing the first nonfiction reference behind-the-scenes book for our show. No, no, <laughs> no. That's not how it works. The everybody, the, the crew, the actors, the producers are all trying, just trying to the hell to get. They were at the end of their year. They're just trying to get a hiatus and some yeah. sanity. They're just trying to get the show over for the year, you know. And everybody else is, and everybody else trickles down backwards from that. And I sat for three days and didn't do anything. And finally said, "Look, I know some people on the. I've corresponded with some people on the show, Mike and Rick, uh, Kuda and Sternbach." And Eric Stilwell by then. It's like, I know some people on the lot. And they're like, don't you go on the lot without having permission. I go, I have to do a book. I'm doing an official book. This is like the PR. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I had a screaming. I, the, people that know me know I do not, do not scream. But it was like I was caught between a rock and a hard place. If I didn't get my, figure out a way to get real stuff for this, I was going to be laughed out of out of the Trek world before yeah. I even had a foot in it. If I had a wimpy little shallow crappy book that was a joke, yeah. 
it wouldn't sell. I wouldn't make any money. I wouldn't do another one with pocketbooks, and fandom would hate me, and n- nobody else would care. So I had to like walk this line, which I seemed to be able to do, and and did enough interviewing, and then back home. Jerry Taylor and Michael Piller and Rick Berman and Brannon all called me at home and we did phone interviews later on. But I did go over to the sets finally and um, uh, talk to, jeez, um, uh, 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 one of the, uh, Legato, uh, uh, um, Rob Legato, one of the two special effects supervisors. Right. Sorry about that. Uh, on the, he's like, um, I'm really busy over here on the on stage uh, eight. Can we do the interview over in the ready room in the bridge? I went, yeah, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. <laughs> we can do that. Because once you get past the, the weirdo gatekeepers, yeah, nobody else cares. It's like, okay, we got to do this. Oh, cool. I mean, because the crew, I know it's hard to believe this, kiddies, but there was a time when, when people, fandom and people did not know the names and the shoe size and the social security number of people on cruise, you know, yeah. like Star Trek, the big joke, uh, Al Smutko, the construction coordinator's name jumped out at people in the credits and these kids, college kids in Michigan came up, started the Al Smutko fan club for him and it was a big, but it's like nowhere else but Star Trek does that kind of thing yeah. happen. Now it might, but pre-internet, pre-social media, nobody knew all the, but Star right. Trek, you knew who the caterer was, you knew who the second assistant, you know, visual effects, dentists, dogs, veterinarians, great uncle's niece's accountant was you know well, they were the caretaker of this this legacy well, right and people people loved the actors and then it trickled down to the writers too but then people wanted to know or i did and i guess that's what i brought to it that i wanted to, i find when i got a chance to have the keys through this and through the the magazines and everything else i ever did when i got handed the keys to the car i wanted to do things what i'd always wanted to do i didn't want it the millionth Love Marina Sardis to death, love Michael Dorn, love Sir Patrick, but I didn't need four million interviews with them. I wanted to know why this was done this way and why not, and what does that little writing say, and why was this, and what did you not do with the writers, with the, you know, with the visual effects, with makeup, with costuming, with props, with the art department and the graphics, and what do those little graphics there say, Mike Okuda and Rick Strumpel, <laughs> you know? And that's what I wanted to do, and that was kind of a, nobody was at that level back then of of caring about anything, much less Star Trek. And I was in a place to be able to do that. And shows like Lost and others like that—that's you know that's what the, the, the fans drive on all those details. Oh, yeah. Well, Next Generation got so popular that it not only begat DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise's own spinoffs, but you had Xena and Hercules and Babylon Five and. And Battlestar eventually, yeah. and um, you know, and, and Lost, and 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 it, and it moved off of syndication into the the satellite channels, the you know the off channels, and then mainstream TV, you know, or even visual effects used to be spaceship battles, and by the time Narain was running, you know, CSI, those those are crime dramas, but they had so much, you know, and here's the toxin zooming down the guy's leg, you know, <laughs> to poison his heart, and you had visual effects of the insides of bodies dying and. You know, it's like, well, the visual... Th- There's no space shows on right now, but all the CGI guys are got plenty of work doing crime shows. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the zooming in little scopes on microscopes, and here's the blood on the slide, you know. But yeah, it, all that stuff went... Made, Next Generation launched all that. But anyway, I, I was very lucky to be there with the book and then on the lot and trusted a trusted person and did so many f- official licensed projects and a lot of things that that people things were commissioned not knowing how how skinny the reference was and then going over to the archives were so sparse and then going over to and you know and we didn't have cell cameras and digital cameras so cameras on stage were rare they would do approval pictures of props and costumes and makeups but they'd be crappy polaroids right yep. <laughs> you know so you know occasionally you'd have good pictures the set dressing pictures for the set. So all that stuff in fact files was like just a, a hog for detail, detail, detail. And nothing had ever been done to that amount. Of, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting all rambling no, here. You're but, totally fine. But nothing, like, again, Star Trek broke the mold, and I was just really lucky to be there to be responsible. But people trusted me, and I didn't... The first time I ever met Ira Bear, he had just been screwed over by an interviewer who misquoted him up and down. And I didn't know him from Adam. I was going in to talk to him about his next-gen stories for right. the companion, the second... After the Blue Edition came out and I got to finally interview more 
I came out for two weeks the next year, and then I came out for a month and a half after that when we knew there'd be the red edition, right. and the series would wrap up, and they were working on Generations, and they were working on Voyager, and I was trying to get in for that. But by that time, more and more people, and you know, the Dan Currys and the Mike Westmores would say, this is Larry, he's cool, you know, and the trust factor was there. Because after Next Gen was over, I, I knew everybody. And my wife was working on Voyager, and I didn't have any official project. You know, Mike, uh, Terry, and I mean, Paul and Terry were doing the DS9 companion, and nobody was talking about a Voyager yet. Uh, Steve Poe actually did a Voyager book kind of thing. <clears throat> I had no official reason to be doing this, but every, I wanted to sit down and keep talking to everybody when everything was fresh and everybody yeah. was happy to do it. As I picked the right time to do it. And on their leisure, and so I've got these five, six hundred hours of these back in the day interviews with everybody when their minds were fresh, and we'd sit for an hour, or some of them two hours, <laughs> you know, from writers and the, on down. And it's an amazing resource now. Plus, it's like a snapshot in time. They've, I had some of them when they started doing the D DVD documentaries, you know, and other people have. They, it's yeah. like, thank God, Larry, that you did that book because I can go back and remember what I said then, <laughs> or what I was doing on this one show, you know. And so that's that's been an amazing. But I was just, it was just amazing to be there when it all exploded right. in the crossroads of being a trusted person that you know delivered what I said I would do and could keep if I needed to know where the skeletons were buried I could keep that quiet about that you know and and the internet kind of grew up as things went along through that you know by the time of Voyager and Enterprise message boards and things no Facebook and Twitter yet but yeah. I mean Discovery is the whole new thing that's an interesting thing to watch now it's the first Star Trek of the social media right, era yeah. so yeah and the, I haven't joined any groups yet but I'm part of the Orwell group and I'm just getting dinged all the time and we're only three episodes in but you, t you talked about that those backlogs of interviews um, is that where uh, Portal 47 comes in were you sharing that material some of it Portal 47 and thank you for asking me that so so everything kind of, for me was I had more work I could keep up with there was so much going on and then 2005 everything more or less blew up not just because Enterprise was cancelled and the the modern era, the Berman era, ended. That was one thing. But also, uh, Decipher Games that had bought the official fan club that ran Communicator Magazine that we had turned, we had brought so far in just a few years uh, to the level of sophisticated. All my things I wanted to do, like, I don't want to hear people talk about something. I want to go talk to the people. I want to go to the horse's mouth. Yeah. I, I grew up reading, and, you know, God bless them. You couldn't. You, it's all you could do in Minnesota and Iowa and Oklahoma and Idaho and, and West Virginia, if you were if you were wanting to read more Trek, and nobody in Hollywood or New York knew how to give it to you. Um, you know, oh look, it's the millionth interview with so and so. But I want to know from the people I like to talk to. So fans are doing their own stuff, or they're writing in magazines, and everybody's it's essays, and it's basically talking. And it's like, no, I want to go to the person, and we had built Communicator up into that. I don't want to talk about this. I want to talk to the guy that did it, yeah. or girl, gal. So that all blew up when Decipher uh, had, a had a bad business turn. They, their games mainstay blew up. They also had some internal things. So they gave up their license and gave up the magazine, and there was no active production. And Viacom, what I call the Viacom divorce, yeah. <laughs> split CBS and Paramount, and, and in the custody battle, Mama CBS got Star Trek the kid but Paramount the dad got to take it out for a special weekend every three or four years in a movie right. <laughs> while mama didn't care about the kid kind of basically yeah so all three of those happening together and the licensing world blew so I had no job nothing attached to so I was like what should I do what should I do and within a couple of years I was working with Star Trek, the old Star Trek.com and even they were dissolved and all laid off and there was no Star Trek.com for three or four years and and CBS was reconstituting itself as, you know, licensing and all the arms of that, instead of all being on the lot together under the Paramount Big Banner, Viacom. Yeah. They were all split up all over the country, and people didn't know each other suddenly, where there'd been this family of people in the, in, in the community, in the, the professional, in the licensing, and the professional, you know, world, all knew each other for 10, 15 years, and that all blew apart. And there were very few people, you know, Pocketbooks was left standing, and a couple of people in licensing were left standing. 
CBS didn't have a licensing department because networks didn't do that. The studios that made shows did that. Yeah. But now they had inherited Star Trek and everything else. So that was a crazy time, and I had to invent something of my own. And then the world, the digital world was all, like, who knew how, what was the business model for the Internet in 06 and 07 and 08? Nobody knew. Nobody knew. It, yeah. So things evolved. I found an entrepreneur coach, and Portal 47 is, I got so tired of people going, you know all those people you know and all that stuff you have and all that, those things you've seen? You should do something with that. So Portal 47 is me doing something with all that. Getting all the, I say Portal 47 is for new fans, bored fans, and fans who have no idea how much Star Trek they still don't know about. I'm a big fan, and I, I bet there's tons that I don't even well, when, know. Well, when you, exist. things that are stuck away, but also the people that worked on the shows that yeah. I love talking to, because they all have insights on what they did, on things of the shows they worked on, and on each other. And a lot of the people that they know of have passed away since then. And, and they're not exactly big convention guests to begin with or interview guests to begin with. So we have, you know, we have writers and, and designers, but we have stand-ins, we have stunt people, we have writer's assistants, we have, you know, the office, but people who have creative stories and they have a lot of their own pictures yeah. and their own stuff. <laughs> so things nobody has seen before they share. And we, I use a, this is the highlight of the month. There's like eight features every month. Um, so I bring out my arch- I do bring out my archives. Sometimes it's audio, sometimes it's video and or graphics or archival things from the studio that people haven't seen or have rarely seen. So I bring those out, and um, uh, then I have some financial things. Like if when I put a piece on my Trekline trunk, a, a script or a blueprint or something, it's they get a percentage off of that. Or my Trekline day tours that I do around LA to film sites, they get a chunk of you know a discount on that. But the highlight of the month is is we call it Ask Dr. Trek Roundtable, where it's everybody comes on to, to ask me whatever they want to ask. And the last year or so, we've had, and this is the second year, about to have the second anniversary. Right. Uh, we've had all the Discovery news coming along. So people are all like watching the drip, drip, drip of those news. And we talk and people throw, and the community that's building. I've got over 50 members now and aiming for 200 eventually is what I can handle. But we use free conference call platform software for that and for a guest every month. And we just opened one for the Europeans to be on their prime time, which is our afternoon, because it's three in the morning when we do yeah. this at night on the evenings. So now we have two roundtables a month and a guest, and then we, everything's recorded. And now the platform has, has slideshow capacity and webcams, so we have visual as well as the audio, and everybody gets a recording of that. And I feel like I'm getting a lot of people recorded that haven't, you know, I, I could do, a, I'd still like to do sit down real interviews, but for a lot of these people, it's the first time they've talked and shared. We have had, the other amazing thing is we've had the woman who is the female, the, the woman's costume dresser from the original series, second and third seasons. Oh, wow. She was like 22, so she's just 72 <laughs> yeah. now, and she still works around town. You know, I just made contact with one of the people who worked on Jimmy Rugg's special effect, not visual effects, but spe- like explosions and made the doors work and the lights light up and all right, that kind yeah. of thing on the original series. It's going to be a guest coming. And we do all the next gen, vo- you know, and we'll do discovery as soon as they can talk and not get shot for talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we will have this, you know, I got to, got to go to the premiere last week and made, had been Twittering with people, but made some, you know, contacts and, and they're, they're busting at the buttons to come out and talk. There's yeah. a lot of fanboys and fangirls in the crew in the writer's room, and they're wanting to talk as soon as they're allowed to. So, but, and, but they're high profile, and they're going to be out there that's just new, which is all exciting. But again, Portal, I say it's like a mini-con all year long, no matter where your center seat is. So right. we have, the other thing I didn't think about was we have a lot of people who are isolated. They never get to a convention. So they, not only are they hearing the information and the guests, but they're actually online with a community that's building and we have a secret members page where I, I give out news and they talk and post each other. And when some of the weird stuff with Discovery and All Access and the JJ movies gets a little weird and pointed, yeah, I've actually had a couple of them say, thank you for having this safe space where we can talk without having getting you know bombed and kamikaze by haters yeah, by trolls, or just yeah. weird people. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that, but okay, you're welcome. <laughs> So uh, Discovery's new. You've got a project that you were fundraising for last night at 
the fundraising. So my documentary yeah. that people are going to go, when are you going to finish that thing? So it's been a very low-key process intentionally. I didn't sit down like funded documentaries or like, you know, Ira's or Adam Nimoy's recent documentaries have been. They're like done in nine months or a year. I knew that I, unless I got full funding up front, but I was kind of feeling my way along. Content guy, I'm a good guy. The, and I, had a, I have an editor and I have a DP, a, a cameraman. That I have handled. It's the, um, the back-end post-production and then how to distribute, you know. And right. Plus, the world has changed with all the streaming services and all the channels that are out there. There's a lot more place for documentaries now than ever before, which yeah. is cool. But I had to learn that. So the Con of Wrath is the name of it. It's about a real-life event that happened in Houston in 1982. It was the first big mega event ever planned for Star Trek. Conventions were only... Media Star Trek conventions were only 10 years old. There'd been sci-fi conventions with authors for eight, since the 30s. But the whole media world that has now blossomed and blown up with Comic-Cons... Again, Star Trek wrote the template for this. Star Trek was the first thing that had enough passion attached to it that, that engendered so much passion that whole new paradigms of things had to be invented. I say Star Trek invented the internet with paper and stamps. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I agree. There had been singers and bands and actors that had fan clubs, but no entities had ever had a fan club before Star Trek, really. Yeah. Okay, so there was the Davy Crockett fad, you know. <laughs> there was the Tarzan fad, you know. There were the radio shows in the 30s that you could give the giveaway buttons and figurines. Little and things. Little, yeah. But they kind of would, la nothing 50 years, yeah. nothing 10, 20, 30, no, no little dead shows that were canceled after three years that people refused to let die, you know, that tapped into people the way Star Trek did, all, all these levels. So, again, it all, Star Trek has broken the mold and conventions and fandom was the same way. So, but the Con of Wrath was actually called Ultimate Fantasy. It was the first time the whole cast was going to be on stage in an, basically a rock show for Star Trek, an arena show, for, literally in an, in an arena in Houston, but that's where the guys were that had the idea. Had, had, had hosted uh, Walter and George, got Walter excited, he went back while they were filming, had just turned out to be the year they were filming the, con, the Wrath of Khan, got everybody lined up except Leonard, who was in his eh thing about being Spock anymore, decided he did want to be Spock. <laughs> Tried to get in at the last second, and they told him no, because already it was so close to time, which is crazy. Yeah, that. But it, <laughs> basically, it was this huge undertaking with the actors, everybody from Hard Bennett and Kirstie Allen Merritt-Buttrick, and the cast, except for Leonard, but there's a story with that. And uh, fans and dealers and the organizers in Houston. And it did not quite go the way it was planned. And you'll have to watch the documentary. And you, yeah. <laughs> Basically, I say it was like a riches to rags to riches story. It wound up being a triumphant phoenix rising out of the ashes <laughs> kind yeah, of I, story. I got that feeling from the trailer without them yeah, saying exactly yeah. that. It just... And then... Uh, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's so many... It's such a bundle of wacky stories and everybody in their own circle being involved, having things happen, and then pulling together. Um and people say, well, there's been other like conventions that failed and were bombs. That's true, but this was, this was like a golden time. This was like there was no yeah. bloody ABCD or other franchises. <laughs> this was, <Yeah. laughs> you know, and it was the 80s. And it was before the Internet and cell phones. And one of the threads is we tell the story and all the little wacky sidebar stories. But also some sub-threads are, you know, things were so different before the Internet and cell phones and, and you know, social media. And yet they were so exactly the same as they are today, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and this whole thing about the geek girl fandom meme, is it like something that's recent? It's like, no. Women built Star Trek fandom coming out of the fan fiction yeah. and zines that built clubs and conventions. And a lot of guys are involved, obviously. But this thing about, you know, like, it's like, I'm sorry, here's a picture from 1982, and look at all these women. How could that be? This picture has been doctored. It's like, no, they were, you know. Fake news. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so those are some of the threads that are, I just want it to be a very human, and, and then you've got the thing of, this was when these people were all in their 20s and 30s, and now they're in their 50s and 60s, and looking back, you know, and a lot of them are fans, one or two of them are still in active fandom, but they all had lives. Yeah. And there's kind of a fun bittersweet, nostalgic look back at it. But again, it's like, 
How have things changed and how are they exactly the same? Human nature and <laughs> fandom and, oh my God, they were snarky. Imagine that back then. And when the, sh- when the thing was falling apart, they were calling, there was an actual convention and then the this arena show was like an attachment to it. And the, the show was called Ultimate Fantasy and so the fans were calling it Ultimate Fallacy, the Ultimate... Um, uh, 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 s- several things like that. Yeah. The ultimate f up, the fallacy, the fa- and then somebody said, "No, no, no, you guys, we should call this the Con of Wrath because the Wrath of Con had been out for two weeks. The buzz and the high was still right, there, yeah. and Howard Bennett and the cast were par- Howard Bennett was par- par- petrified that this would throw mud on Paramount and Star Trek right in the height of them coming back." So there, there was that tension going on. So anyway, so a fan came up with that title and went back, and the button makers in the dealer's room started making I Survived the Con of Wrath buttons that weekend. Oh, nice. And I've been given two original 1982. So it was like the perfect title yeah. for this. So yeah, so the last few years I've been having, uh, we're wrapping up now, finding some big funders, but I still have a, I have a PayPal page, and when I'm live at conventions, I do a two-hour show for everybody. They put in... $20 for a credit and we have a show and they see stuff that they wouldn't get just sitting at home making a donation so it's brought a lot of interest to it but again people are going when are you going to finish this thing Larry <laughs> and we're working on it now it's getting there we're getting there <laughs> yeah in the next year so uh, people will hear this probably later than tomorrow but Discovery debuts oh, yeah. tomorrow and you, you went to the premiere mm-hmm. uh, without telling us things what, what's your feelings about the new series? It's it's sumptuous. There's you know they're they're bringing they're bringing the next chapter to Star Trek, and nobody wants to mess that up. They're also launching a business, CBS All Access, and the suits and the stockholders don't want that messed up. So there's like that level of pressure there. Even though a lot of fans are mad, they're having to pay for Star Trek, and I just want to go. I'm sorry, have you had cable the last few years? <laughs> you know what? Make make priorities. It'll get there. But apart from that, I mean, like the long time ago I divided people were worried about canon and it's like well to me there's concept canon and there's visual canon the concept canon on this as it trickled out when Brian was in charge I was not worried about that and then visual canon is always interesting and there have been some things I go "Mm," about like the uniforms look closer to Archer's time than 10 years before the color pajamas and the whole debate about well is it time to put the original series in a, in a little sentimental bubble and just say, look, the motion picture onward all kind of makes sense. Let's just aim for that. Are we do-? So, I mean, the little, the little kid in me and, you know, the props look awesome. The ships are great. Some of the veterans, John Eves is working on the ships. Some veterans are there. They've had this long gestation. A lot of people were paranoid that it was going to blow up and all the troubles and, you know, Brian having two shows and going away and the delays and all this stuff. And people wondering, where's all the promo? Well, it's the last few months. Here it's been. <laughs> it's been in your face every day. Yeah. And it's finally coming out. But, like, the uniforms and the consoles, is this going to be canon looking or are they giving up on canon? Just talking to some of the writers, to... to um, Ted Sullivan, Aaron Harberts, and some of the other writers, and then talking to John Eves here, I'm they're very cognizant of what, that they're ten years before Kirk, and they're, the whole dynamic of well, we have to appeal to a modern audience and their sensibilities. We can't just you know, I, I see a way clear to do that. I'm not a professional designer or filmmaker, but um, or you know, visual effects, but I, I see the difference between design and cinematography, and I think they're coming back around to realizing that. Just because it was shot in the 60s, made in the 60s, doesn't mean it has to be animated and filmed the same way, right? Yeah. So anyway, but they're also appealing to a whole generation that's come of age with, either, if not the J.J. movies, at least the modern sensibility where visual effects and editing and cinematography is. So they're balancing all that. And we saw the two-hour pilot. It's awesome. But then again, it's like it almost is like a reset to start the story with episode three. Um, it's like there's a lot of preamble. Okay. It's the most preamble. I mean, the Voyager pilot was kind of a preamble pilot, too. I agree, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a lot in the same vibe structurally, story-wise, as the Voyager pilot is all about getting to what the ser- series will be about. But you see all these things happening. There's a, there's a corollary there. Yeah, by the time people are hearing this, this will all be out in old news. But um, I, I've not only been excited for it when I saw the preview talking to more people since then who are fanboys and fangirls with with levers of power they're like 
hang on, hang on. We're getting there, and you're going to love it. You're going to love it, love it, love it. And no, we're not walking around in a vacuum. We exactly know Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and what they did and what they look like. And and they put Sarek in the series Mm -hmm. to to connect them. And And Harry Mudd. Yes. uh, Rain Wilson. I, I met him in person last year. Very charming guy. And when I heard of that casting, I was just like... Perfect. Uh huh. I, I was very excited about that. I mean, I've been amused over the last year of the things people have found to be weirded. I mean, some things I get, like some of the visual canon, but some of the like casting and some. Well, there's just been some weird reactions. Partly the times we live in. Yeah. But um, yeah, I I've just been amazed. Sometimes I've done a lot of podcast interviews, and we talked about how really like I didn't see that. Like the the loud ten percent are griping about that. Really, really. Where did that come from? I think people are just too picky these days. Well, they're passionate and they get... I get it that they get fearful about defending the thing that's been their passion. And when it, that's in the absence of a vacuum of information, your mind can go to the worst possible outcome. I think once the show is out and running and, it's, and then it starts having a forward motion and maybe even evolving a little bit, visually and conceptually... That, that vacuum will go away and there won't be all this, you know, uh, flailing around space. <laughs> True, yeah. The unknown can be I'm very be optimistic, though. I've been saying since Tuesday that I, I, I think they've, they're walking a line between trying to... They've got to bring in new people. And, um, and I think... They, and the kids. And I think they'll, they'll do that. And they're trying to build this new business enterprise, no pun intended. So they're doing all of that at once. And I think it'll... And the Netflix, people in America forget about, they've got blinders about how 90% of the rest of the world is watching on Netflix and how yeah. that's gone crazy. And Netflix is thrilled. Not and bad. they've got three-fourths of their budget from Netflix and how that's like a guarantee in the bank. So, yeah. CBS, the corporate CBS and Moonves seems to be happy. So I think I heard somebody say they're happy with their numbers from all-access signups. So. I, we will see. Well, I always talk about the great armchair fans, although most people yeah. are going to watch this not in their armchairs. They're going to watch it on their pads. But on, on the bus. On the bus. On the train. Yeah, on the train. <laughs> so wherever they are, the seated fan versus the, the online, you know, person that's got the angst. But, um, but yeah, I, I think they're talking about They haven't had a green light for a season two yet, but I think they've already got it in their minds, and even a season three. And not that it'll be this... A lot of this stuff with the Klingons is like the initial arc, I think, that the whole... They've yeah. said the whole thing won't be this unending Klingon thing. They will get around to fleshing out uh, I'm this not, gap in the timeline. I'm not on board with their look. <laughs> it just... <laughs> well, see, I, I, that's been the thing that I've been the least worried about because yeah. I was like, it's a big empire and they could st- the Klingons could stand a little species <laughs> diversity and that's kind of what they've come... What's amazing is you go back and listen to what I was saying a year ago and guessing, they've kind of come around to it. I don't know. It was the plan all along, I'm sure. But I, they're just saying, hey, there's got to be more than one species. It's many planets, and they didn't all come from Kronos. And, you know, they've had hundreds of years to separately develop, split up. And Anyway. And, and Romulans and, you know, Vulcans are similar. So, yeah. Right, right, right. So, in closing, while it's not an official Star Trek show, but there's a lot of Star Trek people involved... Orville. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've watched all, all three of the episodes. I, I've loved them. I love the feel. W- what are your feelings about the show? No, it's, the Orville feels like a, a comfortable old pair of slippers I just found in some ways. And I'm not damning it that way. It feels it, you, you walked right in. And, yeah, uh, Brandon works on it, David Goodman, Andre Bermanis, uh, Marvin Rush, who was the DP from season three of Next Generation through the end of Enterprise. Uh, is their director of photography, cameraman. And um, and I keep wondering if, I, you know, when it wasn't like nonstop fart jokes at the beginning, I was like, okay, good. And then it was enjoyable. And I haven't seen the third episode yet because I've been here. But um, it feels really good. And I'm just wondering if if Seth is going to push, and maybe episode three I've heard did this, I think more than, you know, Star Trek and Next Generation as a background, but I, bet, I almost have this idea in his head, and people, oh, Galaxy Quest, and that kind of, you know, twinkle, wink in the eye. But I keep thinking about MASH and how MASH was this wonderful oh, dramedy yeah. of how it was a sitcom. It wasn't, well, then, MASH's people never called it a sitcom. 
but how it was a comedy, but then you could turn, the pathos could turn on, and you would have a tragic moment and a really heartfelt moment uh, turn on a dime and go there, and then pull back from that and go on, and how they could do both. And I, I'm wondering if, he's gonna, if they're going to push it into the MASH space. I would love that. Because as soon as you said that, I'm like, yeah, it definitely has that feeling where these... Yeah, it's the ability, if they can pull it off group and, of people and hold that up. That can yeah. hold that balance. Well, thanks for coming on. Where can the world find you on online so they can check out your stuff? And- oh, oh, yeah. LarryNimichek.com is my main site. And I'm at Larry Nimichek on Twitter. And um, uh, my YouTube channel, I have a lot of... I, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. I have to get the numbers up. But I have a lot of sit-down, nice interviews with all kinds of people. My one with Rekha Sharma when she was on Continues and then got cast on Discovery kind of went... And she looks amazing. Uh, went through the roof. I have a whole lot of actor guest star type actor interviews to put up and a lot of fandom things but my YouTube channel is just Larry Nemechek like my Twitter and then Larry Nemechek's Trekland is my Facebook and my Instagram and uh, and there's a portal47.net there's a conofrath.com there's Facebook pages for those too but just one note about Portal 47, uh, you can go to the page and check it out but I every year I have my anniversary I have an open house so we give out a key if you come and sign up, um, we can have tons and tons and tons of people listen in. And the guest for our second anniversary open house is David Livingston, uh, who was there at the beginning of Next Generation, since this is TNG's 30th anniversary year, too. Uh, kind of lapping yeah. <laughs> with Discovery. <laughs> and um, he's our guest for an hour or maybe an hour and has a ton of pictures he's bringing along. And people can listen on the phone like, like the regular members do. You can listen on just your phone or you can come online and watch it visually and do the audio that way, but you're also seeing the slideshow. You can see us talking on webcams if you get the URL. So come and sign up. Um, you go to my site and you can LarryNimichek.com. We just got the page active. Sign up and then you'll get sent the the URL and the phone number, if, whichever way you want to come on. But that's Wednesday, October 18th at 7 Pacific and 10 Central, or 10 Eastern. Um, so that's coming up, and I'm I'm just excited to keep growing the portal and. Yeah, you can check everything out, though, there. Oh, we appreciate coming on. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I have a new oh. podcast oh. starting with Roddenberry <laughs> called The Trek Files that's going to get into Gene's uh, archives that have not really been looked at, especially from the 70s and the 80s. The movies that didn't get done, the shows that didn't get done, and, and some uh, the, 60s things, too. Uh, the Phase 2 si- series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the, all the years that fans were, like, because they, they went through all these movie projects that didn't happen, finally leading into Phase 2, and then finally into the motion picture. So I, I like the cartoon. Was, was there any more scripts for that? There may have been works? a couple more in the. Yeah, I think a couple of the writers had some things lined up, but they didn't. They didn't get commissioned yeah. to do more of the animated. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but look for that. And then I have another show coming down the line that will be a video interview show with the Roddenberry Net Podcast Network. Further on down the line. Well, awesome, great. I. I gotta uh, get all this stuff done. Once, <laughs> once I have people on the podcast, I share their stuff like crazy. So well, thank you. Yeah. Welcome to the that. family. Welcome to the Your Creativity family. <laughs> Very nice to meet you, Larry. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me aboard, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. Bye, bye, everybody. See you next time.